Welcome to the Getting Closer to the Cloud podcast. We are Microsoft technologists here to help you raise your rhythm of technical intensity and climb the cloud maturity curve. In each episode, we will talk about the latest and most interesting developments in the Microsoft Cloud and perform deep dives into topics of interest. Hello, I'm Shane Baldacino, and we're back again with episode three of the Getting Closer to Cloud podcast. Pete, it feels like we're starting to have a bit of a rhythm going on here. Indeed, Shane, it's nice to be back for episode three. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Pete here joining you and tickling your brain from the inside of your ears with a cool update around Azure and all things Microsoft. I love it when technology makes my life easier. You know, doing a bit of legwork for today, I am pretty chuffed, pretty impressed about some of these announcements. They are reducing the time to value in many cases, allowing you to focus on those high value activities. Um, you know, I say it all the time, it's about choice. And I'm saying this today, you know, without the marketing spiel. Absolutely. This show is low on marketing, hopefully high on tech value. And uh, we're here to raise your technical intensity by letting you guys know of uh, of the coolest, newest things that we've been pushing out here at Microsoft. That'll certainly, yeah, amp up your productivity scores. So speaking of cool tech sort of things mm-hmm. here, I'm on a mission to sample new things, new languages, new this, new that. And whilst I'm seeing all these posts everywhere on the Raspberry Pi Pico W, you can't get them in the land of down under as yet due to some, I think, wireless uh, regulation, I was mucking around with something near and dear to my heart. And I do this because, you know, hey, I can. I write on this platform called Zwift, Pete. And even with our modest but ever-growing audience, I would bet there is a Zwifter here amongst us. You're going to have to explain what Zwift is though, Shane, because that sounds like a painful thing that you could, you could be writing on. So uh, <laughs> what's Zwift? Basically, it's an indoor cycling platform. Uh-huh, where gotcha. You ride a bike, you yep. can ride with other people, you get drafting. It's pretty amazing, you know, fancy electronic uh, gadgets to you know put your normal bike on. Did everything you needed for COVID survival, right? When you were locked up in your home and you couldn't get out? Absolutely. That's when I bought it. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges I get is when I start, you know, I'm pretty cold if I have a fan on. But if I don't start with a fan, I've got to stop and turn a fan on and I get hot. Mm-hmm. So long story short, this game has an API and I have my automation platform in my house. I wrote some code to detect when I'm writing in game. And then I read the uh, heart rate data, the telemetry. And with my heart rate data being an input, I drive my fan accordingly. So I have something I'll have to blog about at some stage, but I was pretty impressed seeing a fan go on and off based on how hard I'm working. I love it. I reckon you should dim your lights accordingly. So the, the, the higher the RPM rate, the uh, the higher the fan spin, I reckon you should dim the lights to create this really you know, cool ambiance and get some flashing lights going like warp speed like you do in Star, like in Star Wars. Ah. Maybe. <laughs> well, look, uh, we have talked about, you know, uh, the show tenants in the past and we have, um, you know, a builder theme here as you've just covered, Shane. Um, and, uh, and I hope you do realize that many of the updates um, that are flowing through our platform are constant. It's like a fire hose of updates, uh, you know, hitting an event hub, a bit of a tech joke there. So in this episode of Getting Closer to the Cloud, we're going to cover a roundup of updates that uh, occurred in the months of June and July in 2022, in case you are joining us from the past or the future. And uh, not only will we cover these, but we're also going to um, jump really low down into the weeds uh, to give you a bit of a heads up as to how you may be using this. So Shane, some platform updates perhaps, or maybe some uh, AI? Well, let's start with an update around AI. And this is perhaps a very different update to which you know I have, or maybe you have delivered in the past, because it's not an update specifically, nor it's a feature deprecation. Yeah, indeed. Now, look, we've committed to helping customers in many organizations all around the world to achieve more and use AI responsibly by protecting the rights, really, and safety of our customers. Now, we've announced three service updates uh, around Azure Cognitive Services that are consistent with our AI principles. And by the way, I'm not sure if you noticed, but uh, we've actually got a Microsoft Office of Responsible AI. Um, and it really has an interesting position because there's actually somebody called Natasha Crompton, and she is our very first chief responsible AI officer. So I just wonder how many other organizations that are out there that are being progressive around AI are going to start to also create the office of, of responsible AI and maybe just maybe appoint their very own um, officer around responsible AI. Look, the world is changing. That's uh, you know a very progressive stance by us here. Look, AI is changing the world. It is enabling breakthroughs in many areas. 
you know, that years ago were, you know, couldn't even think of mm -hmm. from models for self-driving cars through to advancement in medicine. AI is great. But, you know, as they say, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. It's about ethical AI. Mm. Indeed. It's amazing how customers use services like take AI off the table here. Often they can be used in ways never dreamt up by engineering or product teams. And it's just unintended use cases, which has resulted, you know, in some change of policy for many of our Azure cognitive services and the retirement of certain features in the Face API. It is indeed, Shane. And look, effective today, our new customers who are signing up for access to use facial recognition uh, operations in Azure Face API, in computer vision, uh, in, and then also in video indexer, uh, these customers will have to actually apply to get access. Now, existing customers will have one year to apply and receive approval for continual access to the facial recognition service based upon their provided use cases. So we're actually uh, creating a bit of an interesting um, barrier to entry there. And by introducing this limited access, uh, we add an additional layer of scrutiny uh, to perhaps use and deploy facial recognition systems in production in the wild uh, to ensure that there is actually a fair use of these services and it actually aligns with Microsoft's responsible AI standards to maintain, I guess, to continue and con contribute to the high value end user and social benefits that we all actually aspire to. Now, what this means is that um, um, starting June 30th, 2023, so that's in 12 months from now, existing customers will no longer be able to access facial recognition capabilities if the facial recognition application has not been approved, right? So you have to submit an application form for uh, facial and celebrity recognition operations in Face API, in Computer Vision, Azure Video Indexer, uh, and this is, this is to be submitted via email, and we will actually respond to you back via email. So stay tuned to the registered email of your account because uh, you very well may be receiving emails from us uh, so a subtle reminder here to everyone to make sure that you uh, use your subscriptions uh, email address as a group alias, perhaps, for multiple mm -hmm. in inboxes in your organization. And today, this year, so beginning June 21st, 2022, new customers must now register and receive approval for access to these services in our public cloud. So that's for Face API, uh, for identity and verification features, for computer vision, for celebrity recognition features uh, in Azure Video Indexer and celebrity recognition in Face Identity, uh, identity features, uh, and for custom neural video, all the pro features and uh, speaker recognition for all the features, all of these uh, services actually will actually uh, need permission. And it's also worth calling out that another change that's also comes along with this is that we will be retiring facial analysis capabilities that can potentially infer, and they do infer, uh, emotional states and identify attributes such as gender, age, whether someone's smiling, facial hair, hair and makeup. Now, we collaborated with internal and external researchers and really thought deeply about this one to understand the limitations and potential benefits of the technology and potentially we tried to navigate the trade-offs, right? So in the case of emotion classification specifically, um, these efforts raise lots of really important questions about privacy as well as lack of consensus on the definition of emotions. Because by the way, emotions are not universal. If you read the research papers, they're actually not. Uh, and the inability to generalize, you know, the linkage between facial expressions and emotional states across um, specific use cases, regions, and demographics actually can also be misleading. So the API access uh, to these capabilities that predict um, these sensitive attributes uh, also can open up potentially a wide range and ways of potentially being misused, including, you know, subjecting people to, uh, you know, stereotyping, discrimination, and potentially unfair denial of service. So it's worth calling out that for existing customers, you have until June 30th, 2023, uh, to use the existing gender, age, smile, face, hair, makeup attributes uh, through the APIs, um, but that will be changing. Yeah, and look, June 2023 is less than a year away, and look, we'll paste in the show notes a link to documentation on migration strategies. But if you are using the Face API, you know, something to be absolutely aware of. And look, that's actually not the only thing. We've also um, uh, been providing additional safeguards on top of what we've just talked about. And then we're providing guidance uh, and tools to empower our customers and partners to deploy you know, AI technology responsibly. Um, and we're providing customers with new tools and resources to help eliminate um, how these models could perhaps be performing 
And you can use these against your own data sets uh, and use the, the actual technology to understand the limitations of the deployment. So if you look at Azure Cognitive Services, customers can now take advantage of the open source uh, FairLearn package and the Microsoft Fairness dashboard to measure the fairness of Microsoft's facial verification algorithms on your own data. This essentially allows you to you know, identify and address potential fairness issues that could affect different demographics or groups before you deploy your production into production, right? Into you're taking the prod. And also, it's worth our calling out. So go check out the open source responsible AI toolkit package on GitHub, where you can use the responsible AI dashboard, which is pretty cool because it's a single pane of glass that enables you to easily flow through different stages of your model debugging and decision-making. Uh, and this tool can also be used in a number of different ways from analyzing the model and uh, data holistically to conducting really deep dive or comparison on cohorts of data sets uh, to potentially even trying to explain or perturbing your model predictions for individual instances to help you and help your business users to make better decisions and also infer next actions on the back of the quality of the data that you're going to be using. So we actually encourage you all to uh, contact us, which is to your friendly cloud solution architect and Microsoft in general, about how we can perhaps help you to conduct a fairness evaluation with your own data. Very uh, you know, serious but important announcement at the start of the show. Indeed. Pete, I love a CLI, you know, from Azure Cloud Shell, Azure CLI, they just they just make things awesome when you're on that automation journey. <laughs> so look, here's one that just snuck snuck out there. You know, for the modern builder who wants to quickly release code, you want something that you can just quickly, you know, push out a boilerplate, a, a spa, a single page app. They're mm -hmm. becoming quite popular. And I used this over the weekend and walked away thinking, wow, how simple this was. So Static web apps are incredibly popular. They're cost-effective. They are an efficient building block of modern architecture. Now, Azure Static Web Apps is a turnkey service for modern full-stack apps, you know, pre-built or pre-rendered front-end, a serverless back-end. It became generally available in May of 2021. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's a happy birthday, plus, plus, because it's uh, slightly over a year now, right, <laughs> since it's actually been launched. Great joke there, Pete. Yes, indeed. Um. I really like this pattern. You know, it breaks down many of the norms us older generations are used to. So if you aren't familiar with static web apps, the premise is really, you know, static content served by an object store, dynamic content in the form of APIs, going back in the form of like a HTTP post through an API layer, APIM, and then into the platform to some form of compute layer, like, you know, Azure Functions or, you know, other forms of magic behind the scenes. This pattern allows you your architecture to scale on each component using technologies best suited to its type and purpose. So you could have that static content hosted in a globally distributed, you know, content delivery network, a CDN, um, you know, really fast delivery, object storage. It's perfect, right? And you have your dynamic APIs, in most cases using a serverless architecture, Azure Functions, for cost-effective scaling, you know, on demand. But Pete, how do you go about actually, you know, building this and pushing this out? So you can do this manually, but obviously you can also do it through automated deployment. So I would like to introduce you to SWA or the Azure Static Web Apps CLI. So I also like a good CLI, Shane. So there are a few hats that this CLI actually wears because I do like a good CLI. Firstly, it provides the ability to run static websites with an API locally on your device, on your local laptop, if you happen to be on a plane flying somewhere. So you can do all of your local development for static web apps right there on the spot, which is a huge time saver. And secondly, uh, not only can it do that, but you can also deploy your static web apps directly into Azure. Yeah, so thanks, Pete. Let's break this down. How do you do it? So firstly, the static web app CLI, you know, maybe known as the SWA CLI or SWA. I'm going to call it uh, SWA or mm -hmm. SWA. That's how you invoke it, right? So that's a command, SWA. So you might type AZCLI, you type SWA for this. It's an open source command line tool to streamline your local development experience for Azure static web apps from setup through to deployment. Now, Pete mentioned it allows you to deploy both locally and to push to Azure. So let's pull this apart a little bit more. So it can serve static app assets um, either to a proxy or through to an app dev server locally. You can serve API requests or proxy these APIs into Azure Functions, but you need to have the Azure Functions core tools installed you can emulate or mock out authentication and authorization. 
And you can lastly emulate static web apps config for routing and role-based auth locally. Lastly, you can push these static web apps so you can streamline your development workflow directly into Azure. Now, when you make an application, it's going to be available over port 4280 over HTTP. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, the guts of it here. So it's effectively, you know, it's a bit of a reverse proxy. It's going to intercept HTTP requests and depending on the path. So if it's forward slash API, it's going to forward these to uh, a local host version of Azure Functions if present and so on. So it's going to be serving your static content and the likes of it. So look, to get yourself up and running in this process here, um, you are typically going to, you know, initialize an environment. So you're going to run the init command, swire init. So this command will be used to configure your project to, you know, project use within the static web app CLI. It'll ask for a configuration name, detect your project settings and the frameworks you're using. And it will create a swire CLI config file. So it's a JSON based file in the current directory. You can use this file to configure any options for the CLI. It's pretty simple. Um, and then you'll go through the SWA build and you do this to install your dependencies and build the project. And then finally you start your project, which invokes the, the local server. And off you go and up you up and running. And I did actually notice that on the project website in a, uh, it's a bit of a common bit of advice, which was also happened to be written in bold there. It said, always test on Azure for production. So don't just do it on your laptop. Um, and the static web apps CLI is really that convenience for that local development and testing. It does use, as you call that chain, you know, emulated services. Um, but first, but well, you know, you can do first testing locally of your applications, uh, but fundamentally you do want to roll it out into productions to make sure it validates the expected behavior. And look, and lastly, Aswa can deploy to the prod space for you, right? Automatically, right? The CLI can also be used to deploy uh, Azure Static Web Apps um, using the command SWA deploy. Uh, you may wish to deploy a fully static app with with an API or a dynamic one if you of your choosing. If you are using SWA for deploying, you will then need to uh, um, have a deployment token. Now you can grab this deployment token from the Azure portal or directly from the uh, um, Azure CLI. But uh, as you, as we and all know, <laughs> you want to climb the curve of maturity. So if you are already looking at SWA, you're probably already using a deployment pipeline of some sort, uh, and maybe a CLI or two. In that case, you can actually extract the deployment uh, key via the AZ CLI command. So if you use AZ static web app secrets list dash name and you know, give your application name dash dash query and your properties API key, that will give you that, partic that particular token of your of your choosing that which, which you will be using in subsequent calls. Yes. Now, whilst I don't have the ability to put my common sense line uh, on, the, on the page here, Pete, that was written in bold before, a bit of my own common sense here. Please, please, please do not check your API key into your source code. Um, I wish I could convey the face palming emoji because I've seen people do this quite too often. So Me too, Shane. Way... Countless times have we both seen people submit <laughs> their secret keys and credentials in, uh, you know, in Git repos. Crazy stuff. Yeah, look, find a way to inject this key at runtime. You know, Key Vault, you know, perfect for it. So, look, you've heard all the good stuff. How do you get this working? Um, look, in case you're asking, because I do, yes, it's available as a Docker container. Grab it from Docker Hub. Simple, right? Um, that's the easy part because this needs access to the local file system. And I find providing containers access to local file system a little bit more complex when you need to map local storage by connecting your local file system. It gets messy pretty quickly, right? does right so i'm not going to go through the steps here because it's it's a little bit complicated i'm going to say i'm putting it in the too hard basket mm -hmm. um check out the documentation if you are keen on the container path and i love containers but yeah there are better options there are yes. um so what could it be shane there is runkit now if you aren't familiar with runkit i wasn't i'll be honest um i found it by you know going through these updates it's a playground, a sandbox online that's free to test code. It runs a full Node.js environment because the SWA CLI, SWA CLI is Node-based. It runs a full Node environment and has 1 million plus NPM packages pre-installed, including the Azure Static Web Apps CLI. Check it out. Um, we'll pop a link in the show notes. And the other way, um, and for what I used here, 
is just run on your local system. Um, I did this myself. All you need to do is use NPM or the Node Package Manager. I tested using Windows 11 with WSL2, Windows Subsystem for Linux 2, and Ubuntu 22.04 LTS. So I'm going to assume you have Node and NPM, the Package Manager, installed, and it's just a matter of issuing a NPM install command to install the static web apps CLI. Simple. Nice and easy. And I think uh, NPM is your friend in the new world of uh, building, you know, polyglot applications across multiple different uh, programming languages and static web apps are certainly the, well, I was going to say the future, they're already here. So I would say the future is already here, just unevenly <laughs> distributed, perhaps is what we may be experiencing. Yes. So in summary, uh, the quick and snappy, you know, summary of, of um, Azure static web apps is that you can build them locally and push up into Azure super quickly. Now, speaking of developers, um, you know, if you were to build an application, so let's imagine you've built your coolest, hottest app on the planet. Um, uh, it could be a single-page application, right? Very well, very well maybe. Uh, but you do have to consider one thing, that you can't have applications without a data store, right? So especially in the, uh, in the cloud era of these days, you know, building scalable cloud-native um, uh, web applications uh, that scale globally, uh, perhaps a NoSQL database may be in your immediate future. It very well may be. And look, the recent Stack Overflow state of developers for 2022, not, a, not an advertisement for it, but you know it shows that in the top 10 most widely used databases by professional developers, four out of the top 10 most popular database engines are NoSQL. Now, these top these four are you know mainly skewed towards the bottom 10, because obviously we are always going to need relational. But my point is, and Pete's point, it's a thing. You know, they're, these are becoming more and more popular. NoSQL databases are fast. They horizontally scale. They bring speed. They drive out costs. They can be a game changer. Now, they're relatively new in the grand scheme of things, so they're less common. And my litmus test is, Pete, have you seen a developer T-shirt regarding NoSQL? Now, I've got a <laughs> SQL clause t-shirt and one around you know a select statement saying hey i need coffee um so they're less common and if they're less common pete how do you get started well look cosmos db being our microsoft right, uh, globally distributed multimodal database service that's essentially designed for managing data at uh, planetary scale is is kind of it right um it's a it's a schema agnostic no sql uh infrastructure right it's horizontally scalable and Generally, it's classified as a NoSQL database because of that flexibility in schema um, you know, functionality and being really agnostic. And typically, you could get started by signing up for an Azure account to get access to it. Ooh, but I'm just thinking of you know my son, your son, mm -hmm. uh, my daughters. How, how do they sign up without a, a credit card? You know, we live in the Azure Microsoft world, Pete. But I'd argue, you know, to anyone, uh, you know, building a brand, building anything, you need to make it easy if you know to get people you know, on board yeah, to start leveraging sense. in scale yes. um, to gain a following so where am i going with this right you know signing up for an azure account it takes a bit of time it can be a little bit hard and it makes learning something new like cosmos db just a little bit harder and letting your kids know your credit card number off by heart, as my kids do, that's a very dangerous thing. So let's let's just ignore that for a moment. <laughs> Don't let them use your credit card enough that they know the actual numbers off by heart. But for me, look, um, now Cosmos DB has a free sandbox option to try out Azure Cosmos DB in just two clicks without requiring you to go through the Azure sign-up process and you can do it without a credit card, right? So the Sandbox is an entry point into Azure Cosmos DB in a way that you can learn and experience the value adds of the database uh, platform before you choose to purchase it or get access to it for you, you know, by putting your credit card in. Uh, and then you can also upgrade your account and migrate your Sandbox data to production account anytime within 30 days period, right? And this means that you have access to all three um, Cosmos DB API modes, which is Core, MongoDB, and Cassandra. Uh, and all you need is a Microsoft or a GitHub account to get started. That's right, Pete. You know, 30 days, you choose the API, and all you need to do is click the link, you know, to log into the portal, and you get a YouTube video to welcome you a quick start. And it's quite generous, you know, with 4,000 RUs of capacity. There are guides around modeling patterns to optimize your database, because in the world of NoSQL, your access pattern how people will access the data is often more important how you structure your relationships. There's not too much to report here, Pete. Um, 
you know, had a bit of a play and I love a good news story like this. And I wish other product teams, you know, please listen, we love you all, would jump on board with, you know, a similar approach to what Cosmos has done. Yes, make it, make it really simple. So look, I mentioned the three Cosmos APIs, right? Uh, you have access to them all, but please do note that only one of them can be used at any one time in your free trial, right? So you do need to uh, nuke your database and start again if you wish to use another API interface into it. Uh, for those of you who are big Cosmo, uh, for um, Cassandra users, uh, that Cassandra you know, model is pretty cool. It's uh, You can just move your data over and largely expect it to behave as it would in Cassandra under Cosmos DB mode. So finally, you can try Cosmos DB for free and uh, point your uh, your browser at uh, cosmos.azure.com slash try. Try indeed. Pete, I'm a big believer in monitoring and visibility. And funnily enough, someone told me the other day that, hey, Shane, you've used the quote, you can't improve what you can't measure far too many times. And whilst I may say, hey, that person was probably right, mm-hmm. it's something I really believe in and am very passionate about. I've seen the really good and the not so good when it comes to architecture. And one common denominator between those that are really good, these organizations have a rich, robust monitoring you know, platform, have the ability to move fast, pivot, and generally, they're just awesome. So talk about monitoring here, right? And monitoring in Azure, and it's in the name, Azure Monitor, which is our default on-platform monitoring platform that allows you to collect, analyze, and act on the telemetry data from your Azure as well as your on-premises environments. Now, as well, it's been great for uh, dashboarding. Uh, the monitoring functions have been quite basic in terms of being able to test URLs or URLs. So um, there is math on telemetry and the ability to do this. But if you needed to perform anything of complexity, you would probably need to work a little bit harder and get a bit more creative. Now, and that's because the standard ping URL test on a website can access two criteria, namely the HTTP response code, which is the actual return code of success or failure from the web server and 200 generally tells you it's been successful. Um, And a content match option, which basically is a test that you can actually extract some case sensitive match of a string uh, in the actual response uh, without wildcards, mind you, uh, to test for things like welcome or some other special, you know, or success string, uh, which would basically help you to better understand what's going on. And this has to also be in English characters as well, Shane. Yeah. And look, Pete, the other day, um, I was embarrassed for a major brand. Let's just say they make phones, to which I'm holding up to the camera, which no one can see here. Ah, visual their, joke. Ah, okay. <laughs> I went to uh, their website in Australia and my browser said, ah, you know, don't go here. Their site was down with an SSL error. They let their certificate expire. Now, look, not saying that they're hosted in Azure, but if Azure Monitor was monitoring this website using the URL ping test, it would probably say the website is online, right? And that's because the basic standard ping URL test, you know, it's, it's looking for a HTTP response mm. or content match. Now, there is a new way to monitor this now, right? So the only other method realistically to truly monitor content is for synthetic monitoring. What I mean by synthetic monitoring is, you know, trying to emulate a real world. And that would be typically you'd call a piece of code, might run on a piece of compute, such as Azure Functions, which is perfect for this. And this pattern still has a place, you know, for builders, but this is about choice. So Pete, what has just launched? So Shane, that sounds a little bit complex if you have to do it yourself. So good, but complex. So whilst you may not be a developer or someone who wants to author their own code to do your own synthetic testing, you can actually now leverage um, a standard test for synthetic monitoring in Azure Monitor Application Insights. So the standard test can now run any single request test uh, as a major upgrade to the uh, URL ping test, from which I mentioned before. So as per your example, Shane, uh, this has a reactive SSL check, so you can check for the certificate, so you no longer will be embarrassed that your site <laughs> certificate has expired. You can now set a time period before a certificate expires to be alerted that will need to be updated, which is very cool. So that would have helped our friends there. Um, and the standard test also has a dedicated configuration section for more advanced tests, which can be deployed up to 16 different locations. Oh. So some of these, I'm, I'm going to rattle through a couple of these, but some of these are really useful. So for example, you can have a pass-dependent request, so you can actually test requests to... Um, Make sure that images, scripts, and style sheets and other files under test uh, actually are recorded. Uh, and it 
it monitors the actual response times and how long it takes to get these files. So if a test fails for any of the reasons, potentially that your file couldn't be downloaded fast enough, which is also quite cool. Uh, you can also enable retries. And that's very important because generally uh, when a website is busy under load, it may not respond the first time. But generally on uh, on second request, um, 80% of the times, you know, those, you know, um, connection errors disappear. So definitely worth enabling retries. The SSL certificate validation test is also very useful because it basically lets you um, check you have the uh, correctly installed certificate. It's valid and it's trusted and that it doesn't give any errors to your users, which is also very cool for a, a sanity check. Uh, the proactive lifetime check, and then this setting enables you to define a set time period before your SSL certificate expires. Again, once it expires, the test will fail. You can have a test frequency, which basically says once you've set that, how often the test is run from each of those uh, 16 test locations we mentioned earlier. Um, and that's actually very cool because with a default frequency of five minutes and five test locations, your site is tested on average every single minute. But again, you can amp that up. Um, those test locations can be changed to make sure that you are uh, considered as high as up to those 16 locations. You can have custom headers. You can look for key value pairs that are also coming back as parameters. Um, HTTP request verbs, which means you can indicate what actions you would like the test to actually take with the request when it comes back. And there are a number of different verbs like, um, you know, uh, get and post and so forth. Uh, so lots of fun uh, functionality there, as well as, of course, the request body, which is a custom data associated with your HTTP request. So you can actually upload your own files, uh, type in your content, or completely disable this feature, which is actually a very, very nice synthetic way of emulating essentially what every single browser request would be doing against your website and letting you know whether it's it's passed or failed. It's impressive, isn't it, Pete? It's really bulked up the capabilities of Azure Monitor. I know the question. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. There is a lot there. You know, as I heard you rattle through that laundry list of features, you know, I'm thinking to myself. Do I need to author my own glue for deeper insights? And I would argue the need to author code has now changed with this update. So what you are doing though, you're trading off nested complexity in your code because if you were to implement something to, you know, push a custom body or mm -hmm. you know, do this and do that, you're having to embed that in your code, right? So you're losing that visibility. If it's in Azure Monitor, you're going to be able to manipulate it with, you know, from SDKs, Azure CLI, and so on. So you're losing a little bit of visibility, um, but you're trading it against cost because, Pete, this is not clear cut. Not at all. Not at all. But look, uh, the uh, standard price for the ping test where you can monitor a URL is actually free. But these new extensions and tests that I was just talking about will cost you, gosh, uh, a fifth of a tenth of thousandth <laughs> cent per execution. So it's a, it's it's a, it's a really pretty much a rounding error in terms of what it's going to cost you to be able to actually add this capability into your toolbox to make sure that you never ever have an expired certificate or that your site is perhaps not doing what it's intended to be doing. Yeah. So look, I wanted to make this real, and I love this update. Um, but the cost versus my capabilities makes this less clear cut to me. And I stress, you know, this is my capabilities. I like to build. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you are, I thought, hey. Could you use the standard ping test and call an Azure function to execute a deeper test, you know, emulate what synthetic monitoring is doing? Because remember, the first 1 million executions of Azure functions are free each month. Thereafter, 20 cents per million invocations. So look, assume I monitor a URL every minute as per your description above. Mm -hmm. There's 525,600 minutes in a year. I had to Google that. <laughs> So for every record I'd monitor in a synthetic, uh, you know, monitoring, it would cost around $250 per monitor per year. Where as a Azure Functions, I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it free, right? Mm. So this is that classic reduction in operational complexity. I'm getting increased visibility because I don't need to embed my logic in code versus paying a higher price. Now, the questions I'd have is, you know, are you capable of building your own monitoring platform? You could write your own and return, you know, text back to the URL ping test and perform this for free. It's, you know, it's a question. Yeah. And look, Shane, you got to ask the question as well. You know, 
what is your time worth? And do people have the time to, in the first place? So these alternatives are much more cost effective in my books. And as somebody who's got almost zero slack in his diary with back-to-back meetings almost every single day, I would opt for this by far, even though I could certainly roll up and do this myself. But hey, look, there's a challenge here. If anybody wants to build a, a testing scaffolding <laughs> GitHub project, go ahead, knock yourselves out. Uh, let us know if you do something with this because uh, it certainly could help many others. But fundamentally, do you really need, do you really need to? Um, exactly, giving exactly stuff away. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly right. You know, time is your time is is money, um, and this is complex, right? But I think more than anything, it's about choice. There is so many ways to do things on the Azure platform. I love the fact that you can achieve the outcome in so many different ways. So, look, we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. So, look, Pete, I'm going to ask you this question. You've been in this game long enough. This this cloud caper. <laughs> Um, in this hybrid world, how many times have you architected solutions to perform a name resolution for on-premise systems into cloud and vice versa in the other direction? So hybrid DNS name resolution. Gosh, you're calling this this cloud caper like a like a cloud escapade, Shane. Gosh, um, yes, it's been a long time, and uh, yes, I may be guilty of doing all sorts of uh, split brain DNS uh, deployments, both uh, on-premises in the cloud, uh, in the office, in the home, over VPN. (laughs) So DNS tricks are are quite popular. In fact, I even built my own, um, in .NET, by the way, I built my own DNS server uh, many, many years ago just because I could. And then I very quickly discovered that putting it on the open internet um, made me subject to a DNS amplification attack. So I then quickly discovered (laughs) what a DNS amplification attack actually was. So you learn a lot by building. But look, uh, you also can learn a lot by using existing DNS. DNS infrastructure, right? So the Azure DNS, for example, is a very interesting thing because um, we have uh, uh, offered two types of DNS uh, ways of resolving. Uh, so zone management fundamentally for private and public access. So for hosting a private DNS, uh, as well as for your public DNS records. And Azure private DNS really is about being able to provide a reliable and secure DNS service for your virtual network, right? Essentially, it's private DNS, uh, manages your resolvers, domain names in a virtual network. So you can configure and set up your custom records. And by using the private DNS zones, you can actually use your own custom domain names instead of using the Azure uh, public infrastructure. So the Azure public DNS infrastructure is actually another uh, set of you know hosted services, on, on, this time on a global network of name servers. And our uh, Azure DNS uses Anycast networking, which essentially means that your requests for a DNS resolution queries are answered by the closest available DNS server that's closest to you physically because of Anycast. It delivers that request to the closest server. Therefore, you have five, uh, super fast performance and super fast domain name resolution. So we've actually got an announcement around this space, right? And this is actually around our private DNS resolvers, which enables you to query Azure private DNS zones from an on-premises environment. And that's where that split DNS thing has come from in the past, right? And vice versa, you can actually do resolution uh, from cloud into your uh, infrastructure you know, in your office or at home. So you can now perform conditional forwarding of domains back to on-premises across multi-cloud providers, as well as over to public DNS servers as well. Yeah, and look, think about how you would do this in the past. You might have had, you know, Bind or Windows DNS servers scattered in your environment. You may need to change your VNet DNS configuration to query other servers. Becomes complicated. How do you expose that to multiple accounts? I could go on here. You know, there's a fair bit to think about to do this reliably. Yeah, and look, there's right. a lot of complexity that actually comes with conditional formatters, right? You got to go, sorry, forwarders rather. You got to check, you know, if I'm here, then do this. If it's this kind of a server, uh, if you're doing split brain, are you doing, you know, uh, having, you know, doing this, doing DNS trickery, for example, for a lot of dev dev test environments, people do a lot of clever stuff where they actually fake or pretend um, that a certain certain you know IP is uh, masquerading as multiple different names. There are wildcard options. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, a whole truck of things you can use in a text record in DNS for secret keys or verifications of uh, ownership, uh, including, you know, I've seen, uh, I may have actually written a server that did this, which is one of my pet projects, which actually used a lookup of a DNS record, then it would check whether a virtual machine was actually up and running. And if it wasn't, it would turn the virtual machine on. (laughs) And then if you put a prefix, uh, you know, stop dot 
domain name, uh, it would actually go, oh, it's a lookup for this machine. I'm going to shut it down as long as as long as I know it's coming from a trusted IP address. So you can do some really clever stuff uh, with obviously that's that's you know, writing it yourself. But again, you know, if you're trying to resolve on premises, split brain, multi cloud DNS, it is voodoo in some cases. And this this feature announcement really makes life so much easier. I was expecting you maybe to weave in a host file there, Pete, but lucky you didn't. Oh, there are host files. That's right. Yes. I forgot about those. Gosh, uh, that's another hack for developers that I've seen do lots of clever voodoo by uh, trying to have a local host file that uh, resolves to a whole bunch of weird and wonderful things. All right. So speaking of voodoo, let's get rid of the voodoo here, right? Because this solution is going to work with everything. You know, your Express Reality, your VPNs, your Azure Bastions, it's going to just work. So the update here is Azure DNS Private Resolver. It is in preview, so it is not generally available as yet soon, but not for now. So with this, customers, you're going to be able to manage your DNS settings, you know, do it at the VNet level, the virtual network level, in a very simplified way by linking rules to each other, you know, in other virtual networks to enable conditioning forwarding at scale. So how this works, um, it can be very fine-grained in the implementation with both inbound and outbound resolver endpoints. So meaning you can choose to have name resolution in one way or the other way or both, right? So inbound meaning resources external to your VNet that can resolve and external meaning your Azure resources can resolve using external DNS servers. So look, worth noting here, um, the external endpoint. So if you are using an external endpoint, not an internal endpoint, if you are using an external endpoint, meaning you know your Azure resources again can resolve external DNS servers, you need to have a dedicated subnet in the VNet where this resolver is provisioned with no other Azure services running in the subnet. And you need to delegate this to the Microsoft.network forward slash DNS resolvers. DNS resolvers will then get sent to this outbound endpoint and will egress from Azure via this method. It is voodoo, isn't it? <laughs> and we take away the voodoo as much as possible, yet there is still a little bit of extra stuff for you to be aware of. And networking, as always, does require a little bit of peeking under the covers in order to make this really cool stuff work. Yeah, exactly. Look, I think we could go into a lot more detail here, but look, listeners, I think this is just awesome in summary, right? The, for me, it's about zero maintenance to you, you know, a fully managed service which doesn't require you to patch, maintain, you know, maintain that, IaaS offering, mm. it's available. Now, this is uh, one thing to be aware of here, actually. It's available only in regions that have availability zones. So, you know, keep that in mind. This feature is not available in all regions at this stage, but it is available in those that have availability zones. Um, it's got the usual, you know, it's going to work with your pipeline. So if you are building this using ARM, a REST API, um, I was about to say, a spoiler for a future thing we're going to talk about, you know, and the other SDKs, you can do so. Um, there's a quick start to get this set up with Azure PowerShell. But look, awesomeness aside, three points I just want to make clear here is, I just alluded to before, it's in public preview. So like any service that's not GA, I'd urge you to think twice, three, and then maybe more times if you plan to use this in production. Because I don't know if you've seen these t-shirts, it's always DNS. This is a DNS-related offering that's in private preview at the moment, okay? So, again... Um, I would warn people against using it in production, Shane, to be honest. Think twice, four times, ten times if you don't mess with DNS. If DNS goes down, bad things happen. Yeah, it can be the glue in many people's organizations. You can't have name resolution. You know, everything from your Kubernetes clusters may fail through to... Who knows, and right? Um, you'll have to rely on host files. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, again, available only in regions with availability zones. So please check your region availability and pricing to be determined. So stay tuned for that. So Shane, you well, touched briefly upon a little next topic, which is around SDKs. I, you, I did. You've got me and many others probably on the edge of the seats. How about we wrap this show out, Pete, with one last announcement? Let's do that. Cool. Let's let's go. Let's let's go big now. So, look, have you read the latest Stack Overflow developer survey? I have. I love it. It's such a great way of hearing the voice of the developer and the community. Um, it's such an important source of information because it gives you some really interesting insight into what's top of mind for people, what they're doing, what they're learning, and uh, perhaps um, you know where are they sort of pivoting over to. Yeah, and look, I like it exactly what you said, and it's got a substantial sample size. You're talking, you know, a hundred thousand plus. 
I like to look through the trends, the numbers, um, and look in programming scripting languages, one language I've dabbled with in the past is Golang. And what's interesting now, more than one in 10 developers are using Go in a professional context. And I'm sure there are many reasons why. And I'll tell you a story about my first experience with Go. I was doing a bake-off at a company that I worked for around 10 years ago. We built three identical parts of our application. Uh, we built this in C Sharp, Java, and Go. And it goes without saying, no pun intended, that Go smoked both of them in terms of performance. And for those of you who code serverless, so you know Azure Functions, think about cold starts, right? We know they're a thing. Um, code needs to be compiled at runtime, which means a cold start hit. Generally, it's not a thing in production, but it's still a thing. But it's less of a thing with Go. It's just really fast, Pete. It really is. And look, uh, as, a, as a virtual machine junkie and someone who probably knows way too much about virtual machines and uh, engine and pre-jitting of things, I would have loved to be in that, in that conversation with you guys because uh, you know, Go compiles to native code. Uh, Java and um, C Sharp can also uh, uh, generate native code. But again, that's a, that's a conversation for perhaps another time. I don't want to lose any focus here on this awesome <laughs> announcement. So look, in June, um, after some time, we announced the general availability of the Go SDK for Azure. So Go joins our other SDKs with first-party support. Today, not all services are supported. It's a start, and we need to start somewhere. So we have released client libraries for resource management, Azure Tables, and Service Bus. The release includes AZ Core, AZ Identity modules that form the core infrastructure for client libraries. These two modules and autorest.go will form the building blocks for future releases of Go client libraries. And look, like launching any SDK, it is a journey, Shane. And uh, we will continue to expand the features um, around Azure Core and make sure that uh, we have more support for uh, credential types. Um, we're going to add more service packages and expand upon our resource manager features and packages. So yeah, the client libraries for Key Vault, Cosmos DB, Storage, and App Configuration Config services are currently in beta. And we hope to release uh, stable versions in the very soon coming months. And look, the easiest way to get started is to uh, put in Azure for Go developers into your favorite search engine, Bing, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, as we have a landing page that'll take you there to help you to get started, uh, you can learn the core concepts of Azure SDK for Go. Um, and you can also get the latest SDK libraries from package.go.dev uh, or view the source code in the Azure SDK for Go um, GitHub repo. Now, also a list of uh, all Go modules with the latest versions is available as part of the SDK release page. Um, and the SDK for Go requires version 1.8 of Go, uh, which as of this recording is the latest version of Go as it utilizes the Go, G Go generics. I was going to say genomics, but it's a Go generics. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pete, you just mentioned before, you know, that we're adding more capabilities that are currently uh -huh. in beta. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we hope to release stable versions in the coming months. Now, I thought there'd be a handful of samples, but Pete, I was blown away. So I headed over to the Azure Samples GitHub repository. It's got all the Azure samples for lots of uh, different Azure offerings, SDKs. And I had a look under the Azure SDK for Go samples folder from APIM, Cosmos, MySQL, Service Bus, Redis. There would have been like 20 plus folders of different services. And then inside each Service, for example, I'll just uh, pick on MySQL here. Yeah. There would be like 10 samples. Um, it was really comprehensive. So hats off to the Go SDK team here at Microsoft. Yes. But yeah, look, it's, what a, I love the, it's awesome. What, sorry, Pete. It is awesome. awesome. Yeah, it's totally awesome. What I love the most here is we want your feedback. And we're doing this in a way that is very customer. We're obsessing over our customers. We're meeting our customers where they are. Indeed, and look, we recognize that our tooling may not always be the first choice for customers, right? People will maybe go, will go to C Sharp first before they go to Golang SDK, but fundamentally, it's all about the community, right? It's about the developers that are building the next generation of applications, right? And it's we're here to actually meet you where you are. Uh, so if you want to give us feedback in particular, you can join us on the Slack channel uh, or the Golang friends channel on um, Discord servers as well, uh, because it's really important to have that feedback loop chain, right? As you mentioned about getting the uh, developer survey, that's one visible mechanism, but those feedback loops make our products, our technologies better. We have more features and because we open source so much, um, it's there for everyone to benefit from. And if you add something, let us know, uh, put in a pull request and see what we can do. Yeah, um, so for me, the standard is, you know, it's on Slack. It's not on Teams and it's using Discord. 
And I think that is, uh, I love Teams, I love Slack, I love them all. It's <laughs> about meeting people where they are. This company continues to evolve. And on that note, we are out of time, Shane. So today we uh, had an awesome episode of hand-picked announcements that we thought would be relevant to you all for the months of June and July of 2022. And look, we've covered the responsible AI side of things and the changes that we're making on platform by protecting the rights and safety of our customers and partners, especially in line with our AI principles. Uh, and also specific Azure Cognitive Services will now be gated and other functionality deprecated over time. So watch your inbox, make sure you don't miss an email from us. And also in terms of static web apps, CLI, you know, that has also gone live, GA. So you can now build simple command line, um, you know, interfaces for building static web apps that, that can have dynamic content, that can have APIs, uh, and plus have the ability to be deployed to Azure in a click of a button. Yeah, and look, Cosmos DB, a staple of NoSQL, the ability to drive web-scale cloud-native technologies. Tell your friends and family you can now get started without a credit card. So, Pete, you know, your, your family doesn't need to memorize your credit card. All they need to memorize is a Microsoft or GitHub account. Simple as that. Um, I think they could do that, Shane. I think they can do that very well. If they can get my credit card number, they can definitely remember their Microsoft and GitHub account. Synthetic monitoring for Azure Monitor has also gone GA, meaning you can embed some really clever logic, you know, giving you more choice. And speaking of choice, there is Azure Private Resolver, allowing you to provide a simplified hybrid DNS resolution solution between on-prem and the cloud and vice versa. Lastly, we're a company of builders. And as a company of builders, we've added the Azure Go SDK to a first party SDKs. Indeed. And look, uh, did you enjoy the show with us today? Did it resonate? Uh, what do you want to hear from us in the future? So please do send us a note and send us a message at uh, gctc at microsoft.com. That's getting closer to cloud, essentially. So listeners, join us in our next episode where we'll cover a whole run-up of major platform updates and what they mean to you. But until next time, bye for now and keep on building. Bye for now.